everyone to Two Pills Podcast. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Angela Gomez with us. She has a special twist on healthcare education, working in course design, and also doing a lot with continuing education for healthcare professionals. So Dr. Gomez, welcome. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. Can you just go ahead and... Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Can you tell us about yourself and a little bit about your teaching style? Um, my name, again, is Angela Gomez. I have a Ph.D. in educational psychology from Texas A&M. And I originally had a business degree and then went ahead and got my Ph.D. in something that I was interested in versus something that would get me an immediate job. It also got me a lot of student loans, so I'm sure people can <laughs> – that resonates with a lot of you. But um, educational psychology is based on how the brain learns, and it does learn differently for adults than it does for children. And I found that very fascinating. And I have worked for in many different industries using educational psychology and instructional design. I've worked in oil and gas, financial services, disaster management. But for the last 13 years, I have worked in healthcare. I work for Cardinal Health Innovative Delivery Solutions. Um, the office is based out of Houston, but I've worked from home for about seven years now. And our division of Cardinal Health, Cardinal is a big company, but our division of Cardinal Health works on managing hospital pharmacies and also consulting. So those, those are kind of the two avenues that we take out of the Houston-based office, but most of us work remotely. Perfect. And can you expand a little bit on um, educational psychology and maybe if someone is interested in that, how you pursued your roles at various industries um, or, you know, um, what kind of skills you applied in educational psychology to industries? Was it mostly training or um, presentations or can you just expand a little bit more on that? Sure. Um, educational psychology, you know, it boils down to how the mind learns. And when you're putting a course together, there's a, a, a model that we follow and it's called ADDIE, A-D-D-I-E. And you do an assessment, which would be a needs assessment. You would design a course, you would deliver it, um, and then you would also instruct it and evaluate it. And that is, for the most part, that's how people are going to to follow that model. Um, in the real world, <laughs> you don't have time to do all of those steps. So a lot of uh, people who are seasoned instructional designers, they do rapid delivery. And with, in my position where I am now, I've kind of got my subject matter experts trained so they know what to provide me, and we can turn things around really, really fast. But in some industries, you don't have subject matter experts that are skilled at putting courses together. And it could take, depending on the content and the speed of the instructor or the a subject matter expert, it could take anywhere from you know six months to two years. And I have had a course take two years to put wow. together. Um, we don't fall into that very often anymore because, like I said, my SMEs have kind of, we've been working together so long, kind of all trained on they know what they need to provide me from the beginning, and we move pretty quickly through it because I am a one-woman shop. And um, as far as continuing education goes, we do have a continuing education program. Um, we are accredited through um, ACPE, and we provide continuing education for the pharmacists and pharmacy technicians who are either employed by us or who work in the pharmacy that we actively manage. So um, a, a retail pharmacist working at say Walgreens or CVS could not come in and take RCE. They would need to be employed by us and in our division. 
Um, but having said that, we have about 3,000 people that I'm responsible for make, making sure that they receive their CE every year. Wow. And I know, you know, for example, at the university where I am, we're interested in getting more involved in CE for pharmacists around our state and things like that. Do you have any advice? Because I know you have a ton of experience with CE as far as for someone who is trying to put on their first in-person or online CE. Make sure that you are very, very familiar with the ACPE policies and procedures. <laughs> um, they are very, very intense. Um, we recently went through our reaccreditation period, and we're reaccredited for six years, which is the maximum needs to be reaccredited for. But I, I'm a real stickler for following the rules, and over time, that's become a lot easier because I have people that understand that these are the rules that you have to follow. In the past, during my time at Cardinal Health, I worked with one gentleman who, really, honest to goodness, I'm not joking, thought I was making the rules up. Oh geez. And just to make his just to make his life difficult. And then one day before he retired, he called me and he said, You know, I've been doing some reading and I said, Oh <laughs> <laughs> and he said, And I just read through all of the ACPE policies and procedures and I thought, Oh, why? <laughs> he said, And I I owe you an apology because you aren't making this stuff up. They are very difficult to follow. And they are. Um, but they are for a reason. And um, they're getting ready to go through a different Round, they're going to up the, and we just, this information is hot to the presses. Um, they are working with ASHP to um, up the standards for technician education. Oh. So, yeah, it starts in 2019, and by the end of 2020, all courses are to be, all courses for technicians will have new requirements to make. So, oh, wow. Don't know a lot about it yet. The mm -hmm. information just came out Friday, um, but that's going to put a whole, whole new um, that rule, uh, set of rules that we'll have to follow. And because I am just a one-woman shop, it's pretty easy for me to follow my own rules. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it makes it a little easier. But it also has a lot of responsibility because if we don't get accredited, um, we can't provide CE. And that would leave a huge hole and a huge cost because if you think about it, Providing CE for pharmacists and technicians, the 3,000 of them, could be very costly. Yeah. And I know there's free CE out there, but the quality of CE varies from provider to provider, and we pride ourselves on providing quality CE. Um, we don't charge our people for it, um, but at the same time, we discourage people from going out and finding free CE. We really want our people to use the CE that's been written by our subject matter experts. Definitely. So when you've been doing CE, whether it was at Cardinal or at a previous position, can you tell us about a style or teaching strategy that's worked really well and then maybe one that hasn't worked so well? Sure. When I first started working for Cardinal Health, they had maybe one or two CE courses, but they were delivered live. And as you can imagine, we don't live in a, a world where everybody lives in the same town. And it was very ineffective from a cost perspective to send subject matter experts around the nation, Puerto Rico and Guam, to deliver education. Mm -hmm. And so we had a, maybe one or two e-learning courses, but our platform for e-learning was not very friendly. Um, so that was our first thing that we tackled is we got a, a friendly uh, learning management system where we could deliver CE online. 
And for some people, and every learner is different. Some people do really well in a classroom setting. Some people do really well in front of their screen. Some people do well reading a book. Um, I always have to, I have this little mantra that I have said for years. You let the content drive the deliverable. And mm -hmm. by that I mean, if I'm going to offer a course on antibiotic stewardship, I'm not going to put that in a one-hour recording. That's probably going to be a primer that's got 70 or 80 pages on it, because there's a lot to go with that. Mm -hmm. um, another another topic would be, you know, basic bugs and drugs. Again, that's going to be in a primer format. However, on the flip side, if I'm just going to talk about national patient safety goals for 2018, I can put that in e-learning, because it's, it's something that, you know, you can read a few pages online, just hit the next button, get what you need to get, take your test, and move on. So it's not something you'd really need to print out and have by your, your, your workstation. And we have found with a lot of our primer courses, the more complex courses, um, our pharmacists do print those out and they keep them as reference guides next to the, their workstation. And that makes me feel good because I, I know it's not just something that's being tossed in the trash can. You know, they're using it and, and they're using it continually. You know, it's so, so oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that's kind of an example of what works well and what works good. So I, Again, the content drives the deliverable. And I, at the point in being familiar with pharmacy, like I play one on TV, I'm not real, a real pharmacist, <laughs> but I'm at the point in my career where I can look at the content and I can tell you how it's going to work, whether you need a live classroom format. Um, an example of that would be compounding technique. Um, that's something that's going to be done in a classroom. Um, stewardship is one that we, we've kind of got a a different mode of delivery on that. We have a lot of pre-work that's done independently or self-study, as AC would call it. And then we bring people together for a workshop at certain locations, um, meaning that if the location was large enough to warrant uh, flying out there, flying an SME out there, then it would be worthwhile for us to go out there and they would do nothing but cases while the SME was there. So they do all the, the pre-reading pre and then they go out and run through cases. And I... I I'm very proud of that program. That's a program I started with Christy Cooper, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And that was really a new and different way for us to do things. Because another one of my things that I say all the time is that regurgitation is different from application. And when you think about it, we're all good test takers at this point in our careers. We've all got you know, doctorates. We know how to take a test. Mm -hmm. And so if you're just regurgitating facts and figures, you're probably just fine. However... If you are applying that information, it may not work for you because if you've never learned how to apply the information that you can regurgitate, you're still in a pickle because you just, you really can't practice at a higher level of practice if you can't apply it. Mm -hmm. So that's our stewardship program really works on, yes, you've got all the facts and figures, what, what drug goes with this bug, you know, this is what we want to do. But then we run through real life cases, which of course everything's been in Canada. Great. So it's, that's been a real, yeah, it's been a real successful uh, way of doing things for us. 
and we also have it virtually at this point. Um, okay. You know, every company is cutting costs everywhere, and not every, you know, a small hospital only has three pharmacists doesn't mean they shouldn't get that education. It just means it's not cost effective for us to get there. So we now have a virtual version where they can log in and listen to a recording and then listen to the cases being discussed by our subject matter experts. So those are some, some things and our stewardship program is just in the last year, and I know this number because I had to pull it up for my performance review. In the last year, we have run 751 people through our virtual stewardship certificate program. Wow. So that's a lot of CE and that's a lot of people. That is, that is so great. Been, yeah, yes, it's, it's, it's been fun to kind of watch it. It was just an idea one day and now it's actually functioning. So that was pretty exciting. That is really exciting. It's funny, um, when you mentioned that pharmacists really do print out and keep the materials, I just recently, a few months ago, had a former student of mine who was working at a hospital who was um, certainly, you know, um, contracted with or affiliated with Cardinal because the student uh, was working on the Bugs and Drugs Primer, and um, that was the one that I worked with you and Christy on, and she's like, your name's in here. Um, so anyway, they, they really do keep them for sure, so that's great. They do, and, and that's actually the first course in our basic stewardship program that we have. That's the first course they have to complete. They have to successfully complete your bugs and drugs course. Oh, great. So it is, Perfect. It is out there, and feel proud, because that was a it was. But I I learned I learned so much putting that together with you guys too. Um, so, what would you say is your favorite part of your job? You know, my favorite part of my job are the subject matter experts that I work with, and um, you've developed such a close friendship with them. And I've been there for thirteen years, and many of them have been there much much longer. But working closely with people who are that brilliant. I think it keeps all of us on our toes. And, and I say that from the SME's perspective, as I look at them, as they look at me, because I bring a different set of skills to the table. And we have that mutual respect for each other. I think probably another thing that would be in a real close tie for what I really like about my job is it's a challenge. Um, I'm not a clinician. It's just, you know, again, I play one on TV at this point. <laughs> I'm not a clinician, but I learn something different every day. And if I had a job where I just went and did the same thing with the same content every day, that doesn't suit my personality style. It doesn't suit my learning style. That's, that's just not going to be comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. And I can guarantee you on any given day, I'm going to learn something new. And um, I enjoy that about my job. I really do. And the ability that I get to work at home, that's a big plus for you. Absolutely. <laughs> my life. Yeah, no, that's great. Do you have any um, resources like books or um, websites or podcasts that you would recommend if someone has an interest in educational psychology and course design or what you do um, that they could maybe look at as a resource? You know, I do, and there's a couple of things you could do. You can go out to ASTD, ASTD, and the American Society of Training and Development. Go out to their website and look around, and there are some really good books on instructional design, but you could also do a Google search for instructional design, Mm -hmm. and there are many pages that'll just walk you through the simple process. I have some textbooks, of course, that get into more of the nitty-gritty, and especially with the measurement and evaluation, but I I wouldn't recommend getting that nitty-gritty until you get the the basic design down. Mm -hmm. And there'll be um, resources online, and I can tell you, it's an easy way to know if you're looking at a good resource, because we've all 
been online and looked at things and thought, yeah, that's not right. Yeah. One thing you can look at is if they're talking about objectives and then they use the word understand, close the page because that is not, that is a sign that those people do not know what they're doing. <laughs> because when you, when you want an objective, you want something that is actionable and measurable. And if I asked you, Lauren, understand for me this topic. You can't do that. If I ask you to describe this topic, you can describe something. You can identify things. You Absolutely. You can discuss things, but you can't, you can't prove to me that you understand it. So that's always my big thing when I'm looking at resources. If I see the word understand, I just close the tab and move on. And uh, that's worked well for me. Since <laughs> I've been doing this and it's, No, I'm just laughing because I love that. And I must have learned that from you because the word understand in learning objectives makes me crazy. And even if it's just a student seminar presentation, if they have the word understand, I make them use something else. I'm like, use a different verb besides understand. Understand and know. Those are not actionable learning objectives. No, they're not. And, you know, sometimes I will have SMEs very rarely at this point, usually if they're new or maybe we have a resident that's working with us, like, um, you know, you were a resident one time, you know, how we mm-hmm. function with the residents. Yeah. You know, they'll come in with the understand and I'll just cross it off. <laughs> <laughs> and then I say, yeah, they can describe our three right objectives. And no one, none of the SMEs take offense to it anymore. And most of them are really good. I've had a couple say, this, would you like this better or this better? And I say, don't worry about it. I'll fix it when I get it. And so we've, we've just got such a good working relationship with our subject matter experts, and knock on wood, <laughs> that um, they really make my job interesting, and I, hopefully I make their jobs easier. Oh, absolutely. And kind of um, switching gears, but just since you were talking about your um, going to a horse show and things like that coming up, if you weren't in healthcare or teaching as you are, what would you be doing as a career? You know, I've thought about that a lot because, you know, we all get a little restless. And uh, I've been doing this just in this job for 13 years. And before this, Lauren, I've never held a job for more than three years because I got bored. Mm-hmm. And I think and this is going to be crazy. No, I'm excited. I, think I, would, <laughs> <laughs> I would probably go into um, the endocrinology field of oh, yeah. um, healthcare, And I would probably focus on... Um, Fertility and infertility. Oh, yeah. That's been something, and I'll be open with it, that's been something that's touched my life, and I think it touches a lot of people's lives if people are afraid to talk about it. Sorry. And I, that's okay. And I, I, I really feel like something that needs a lot of attention and would be very rewarding to work with that as well. So I do that, or I've also thought about going back and being a nurse just because I've had some. Uh, you know, you have good nurses and bad nurses, just like sure. you have good pharmacists and bad pharmacists. But I, I think a nurse's job would be interesting. Um, you know, my degree qualifies me to teach at an academic institution. I would like working with the students. I would not like all of the politics and everything else that goes along uh, with working at a research one institution. Absolutely. So, Those sound great. Yeah, that kind yeah, no, and I think I think you're exactly right. I think that reproductive medicine and, and, and fertility fields are something that I think everyone is talking about a lot more too, um, and there's a lot of conversations about it, whether social media or online or in person. So I think that's great. And then my last – oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 
those, you know, whether it's, it's infertility, reproductive medicine, or even anything else, the more people that talk about it, even mental health, if you think about that, the more people that talk about it, the more people you can help. And if everybody stayed quiet about, you know, their ailment and just kept all their information to themselves, it's a whole, a whole gamut of people that you can help just by talking about your experiences. And I've, I've experienced that, and it, it feels very good to do that. So I think it, it's a way of giving back to the community. Absolutely, and feeling that sense of connection, for sure. Well, my last question for you is, what is your overall prescription for life, success, happiness, whether in your job or just in general? Well, for my job, my overall prescription would be that, you know, we save patients, and it's patient all about patient care, and I'm very, very, very passionate about patient care. And what I would hope that all of the pharmacists and technicians that I work with or who take our education would abide by the you know safety, efficacy, and cost. And you do what's right by the patient before you worry about the cost. And that, to me, in my position, is very important. I think in life, and the biggest lesson I have learned, and I'm, I'll be 48 in a couple, I guess in a month or so, mm-hmm. and the biggest life thing that I, I've taken with me, and I learned it in my very first semester of graduate school, and my co-chair at the time, he said, the biggest lesson you will learn in grad school is to deal with ambiguity. Hmm. And I thought, what? What are you talking about? And that has been such a life lesson in that before we get to, to the grad school, let's say, or even before you become a parent or just as you get older in life, you realize that things aren't black and white. There's mm-hmm. a lot of gray in there. And you're going to enter, especially in grad school and, and certain jobs, you're going to enter places where there is no right or wrong answer. And you have to deal with that ambiguity and find a way that works for everybody. And so it's kind of an ambiguous answer, no pun intended. <laughs> but dealing with the ambiguity, I think is, you know, I think I, I do a good job at it. And I'm very, very cognizant of realizing that there is no black and white answer. There's always a little bit of gray involved. And to give people the benefit of the doubt and try to be open-minded about it and realize that there's no black and white. (laughs) There's a lot of gray. And if we go into it with that attitude, that will uh, help all of us and help our patients as well. I think that is great. I have never heard that before. And I really like it. Oh. Um, That that sense of ambiguity. What? (laughs) Yeah. I think it's so great, though. It is. And he was right. He was right. Because when we get to, when I got to the dissertation stage, you know, nobody sits down and says, okay, you need to write a dissertation on XYZ. Mm-hmm. You've got to figure out what your topic's going to be. You've got to find an area that hasn't been, you know, researched to that. You've got to, and all of it's ambiguous. The, your professors are there, but they're just going to kind of, they'll guide you. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. And so it really was um, a lesson that I've carried forward into to the rest of my career, and even into being a parent. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity here, right? And I'm a single parent, so there's even more ambiguity. But, sure. You know, you just, you can't predict some things that are going to happen, and you've got to go in with an open mind and ready to shift whenever it's called for. I think that's so great. Just, I really like that. And I like that, you know, rather than going into it, planning to be on one side of things or the other, you're able to see all different perspectives. So I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I, I think with social media and things like that, we're exposed to more these days. Mm-hmm. And there was no social media when I was in grad school. <laughs> and uh, but we're exposed to more of it these days. So hopefully the upcoming generations will be, I think they're probably, I'm seeing it already, they deal with ambiguity a lot better. And they realize that nothing is black and white. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Angela. It was so wonderful to chat with you. 